everyone welcome to talking research i am asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations This episode features an extensive discussion about sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. For this conversation, I was joined by Dr. Holly Davis. Holly is a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the University of Edinburgh where she researches sex work clients in Scotland. Holly received a PhD in sociology at the university where her focus was researching the experiences of pimps involved in illegal prostitution in the US she also published influential research on coming up with an adequate definition of the word pimp to better encompass the word and the trade and all the connotations attached to it in various capacities holly has worked with sex workers victims of sex trafficking domestic and sexual violence and also with male sex offenders and violent male offenders holly and i were sat by a table and we sometimes use the table to place our hands on it and make a point so you might hear some disturbances in this recording so please don't mind that and let's dive in Hi Holly, thank you so much for joining us at Talking Research and it's so lovely to have you here for episode 2. So just to get started, can you introduce yourself to our guests? Okay, so my name is Holly Davis. Uh I research and specialize in uh sex work uh along with also sexual violence and gendered violence as has been the focus of most of my work. I teach in feminist theory and feminist studies as well as sociology and kind of a little bit of a crossover between uh, criminology sociology or deviancy studies how did you get into researching sex work and uh, sexual violence and what motivated you to go down this route so when i was an undergrad i majored in i did an inter- interdisciplinary degree in women's studies and sociology with a minor in what was called at my university africology so african studies um and after that i very naively accepted a job which it was full description i didn't quite understand what i was getting myself into um so at like 21 i ended up working um with juvenile male sex offenders wow uh, i was often it's pretty dangerous actually i was regularly uh, single staffed in like residential facilities with anywhere from 10 to 12 convicted sex offenders you know by myself um engaging and i was really really involved in feminist theory and i was really into feminist activism but i found in doing that work there was a bit of a gap between explanations i had been reading about about males violence violence versus what these men who had been convicted of sex crimes were telling me um and all the the gory detail of it you know so it really exposed me to there's a lot more going on here um and i really got more from them in terms of an explanation of why this was happening so having the background in women's studies really helped uh but at the same time i didn't quite get what was going on until like dealt with offenders really and then after that uh bush got reelected so i left the country <laughs> um and i decided to come to scotland to do an msc so i did an msc degree here at edinburgh in social research and i 
decided to focus on domestic sex trafficking in the U.S. because there was a lot of discussion around um, international, uh, but not so much focusing on the issue that the U.S. has in its its own backyard, really. Mm. They're very good at policing everyone else on trafficking, but not so much themselves. So I, I decided to go into that. Uh, and when I was speaking with trafficking survivors in the U.S., they were spending about 70-80% of their interviews just talking about their pimps. Mm. Um, and so for me, that was there's really something going on here with this relationship and this connection that they have with these individuals. And um, I hit the literature, as you do, and there was barely anything on pimps. So research hadn't been done in the United States in a really long time on these social actors. So I decided to come back and do a PhD focusing on pimps involved in illegal street prostitution in the U.S. So once again, jumped over to the offender side of it, if you would, um, to study the experience and what's going on within sex work and trafficking in the United States from the perspective of the offenders, the managers, the third parties, as opposed to um, sex workers or prostitution survivors within right. the U.S. Yeah. So... Yeah, I just came back here to try to complete the triad. So the other uh, core group when dealing with sex work is essentially the clients or customers. So I came back here on a British Academy postdoc fellowship, which is just a fancy way of saying I've been getting paid for three years to do research and write and teach and supervise. And that project has been focusing on individuals who have paid for sex in Scotland. Mm. So gone from sex workers and trafficking survivors to pimps and then to clients, essentially. Okay. And, um, I mean, for most of us who are, uh, you know, who, who engage with uh, sex work, we haven't really been exposed to the academia on mm-hmm. sex work um, and engaged in, a, in an academic sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, can you give us an overview of that? I mean, it's quite a broad question, but, mm-hmm. you know, if you had to explain it to someone who has no idea of research on sex work, and, I mean, I would count myself among those people, mm-hmm. I know very little, how would you How would you do that? I think there's a couple fields that tend to dominate within the research, and for good reason. Um, but I think probably the earliest that came out was within sociology and criminology. So... Uh, studying sex work as deviancy, um, as a social problem and a problem of legal issues. Uh, and that for a long time has been very loaded mm-hmm. uh, with victim blaming and racial issues and a lot of other stuff going on. And a lot of those legacies actually continue in the research today. Um, in the 1980s, officially, what's referred to as the feminist sex wars kicked off, um, which created for many, many years a very strong binary within the way research on sex work is done. Mm. Within that, there are a lot of splits and a lot. Of, there's a lot of discourse within that. I would say today that the majority of research uh, definitely takes place within the social sciences, um, with the majority of it strongly influenced by either uh, feminist theoretical standpoints, feminist methodologies, feminist epistemologies, a lot of the knowledge is being created within a kind of feminist lens and approach to the issue. Uh, and I think it's well located within that. So I think that's a good place for it because the lenses that uh, feminist research affords is pretty different than a lot of other disciplines. So mm-hmm. it's kind of placed within there right now, but there, like I just mentioned, there's a lot of discourse and contention. It's a very, uh, to put it lightly, it's a very loaded issue. 
to engage in. So it's um, it's a difficult topic to negotiate because it's so controversial and emotions run very high on the topic. Um, and I mean, frankly, the sex wars have gotten really ugly. They've gotten really, really ugly. Um, so in a lot of ways, I think people, whenever I've presented at conferences talking about the feminist sex wars or some responses that I've gotten from other academics or activists or uh, just engaging with the general public, they're really shocked to find out the degree to which the, the vitriol and the uh, tension has hit within the feminist community on this topic. Mm. So it, it's a lot to negotiate and to navigate while you're, if it's a topic that you're interested in going into because mm. it's, because like I said, it's so split. Mm. There's a, a clear uh, division, unfortunately, within the research itself. Okay. Um, and that seems quite reflective of uh, the situation, you know, in mainstream society, how perceptions about sex work, mm-hmm. there, there are usually, it's spoken about usually in binaries, you know, criminalization, mm-hmm. decriminalization, legalization, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of these terms are you know, they are used quite interchangeably almost by individuals in the media or mm-hmm. individuals who don't really know what exactly is going on or how they affect sex workers or survivors. So what do you make of that? Do you think that division is something that is just endemic to the issue or it's something that can be possibly um, gotten over? I think generally there's a lot of misunderstandings about what sex work is and what exactly is going on. And I think there's been a major conflation between activism and journalist versus peer-reviewed academic research. There's also been a big conflation with what is rigorous, valid data outcomes versus not. Um, there's been a lot of really troubling um, what you say, projects or approaches to some projects um, in terms of ethics or methodology that really do draw a lot of questions within academia. Um, and for a lot that those those numbers and those data look good to people who don't really know what they're looking at or reading or don't necessarily have the resources or the equipment or the knowledge to really challenge what they're looking at or to critically assess what they're absorbing. So I think on the one hand, it's misinformation. On the other hand, because you have this split, there are very few um, public sources on this that are looking at all of these issues in a panoramic, comprehensive way. And like I've always told my students, the only thing we can definitely say about sex workers is that all sex workers are people. Beyond that, you're going to have a really difficult time um, making a generalized statement across the board because what sex work is is a huge umbrella term for a bunch of different roles. Mm. There's huge variety within there. Um, And the experiences across those different roles and positions and individuals is immense. Mm. So there needs to be a lot of nuance and specificity to national context, legal context, individual identities, meanings to that individual um, that don't come into play often when this split happens. So with this inherited legacy of the sex wars uh, that's happening, I'm at least optimistic that this, at least uh, in my experience and from what I've seen and the research I'm now involved in and taking part in and the sex workers I've, I've met with and I work with, and the other researchers as well, um, it does seem that there is a resistance to this binary that's Mm. starting to happen. So individuals are saying this is not a black and white issue, this is very gray. 
we want to be able to talk about um, issues such as choice alongside issues of violence. We want to talk about health um, and at the same time acknowledge issues of safety. We want to talk about um, interactions with the police. So what tends to happen because of the split is that both of the sides are forced to defend their position in such a extreme way sometimes that it means they can't really reflect on the opposing uh, variables or issues within the side that they're on. And that really creates a very distorted image of what's going on within sex work. And it means a lot of things aren't getting talked about mm. that really need to get talked about. I hope that kind of answers what you were trying to get to. Yeah, definitely. Um, when I was researching for, for this podcast, or for this episode, I... Um, what can tell me what you think of it right uh, what I gathered was that victim blaming is so uh, inextricably linked with perceptions about uh, sex workers that sexual violence is kind of um, attributed to the profession and how harmful that can be because mm-hmm. uh, the stories of sex workers aren't taken seriously because they're told that the line between their work and their agency is very blurred and how, uh, you know, be it the World Health Organization's research or their guidelines, they very clearly state that uh, sexual violence needs to be tackled if you want to address the health of sex workers. So if you want to reduce HIV, mm-hmm. um, HIV numbers within the sex work industry. And um, so that is something that can't be tackled unless you tackle uh, victim blaming and unless you start taking uh, the the words of sex workers seriously and the story seriously. So what I'm getting to is that in your research about pimps in the US, mm-hmm. uh, you highlighted how victim blaming is something that they resort to in a sense almost to make their own emotional burden about their guilt and about the violence that their prostitutes mm-hmm. face uh, light and almost deal with that. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think especially subculturally, if we look at just specifically the subculture of um, pimping within the black community particularly. So I'm going to talk about just like that group because there are big divisions and hierarchies as you move across different um, social classes and racial identities within the United States. So it is, I think, important to, to mark that out because... A lot of the individuals I interviewed and worked with were simultaneously victims and offenders. So automatically that line gets very, very blurry. So you have individuals that are growing up fairly impoverished. They're feeling a lack of choice. Um, They're under the thumb of extreme discrimination and ridiculously and undefendably high um, incarceration rates for black males and arrest rates within the United States. Um, So they're coming from a position of limited choices structurally within the various structural violences that black males face in the U.S., as well as the black women that I also interviewed who were um, actively pimping as well. And for them, so I think generally there is within dominant culture, there's a a kind of moral code. We understand what's good, what's bad, what's... Mm. So pimps understand this, they just don't agree with it. Right. So for them, it's just, they they know it's there. They're they're really not dumb people. They are very, very intelligent, very cunning. Um, They definitely have what can be referred to as criminal thinking, which is a very sharp, very manipulative, uh, charismatic, and can kind of spin circles if you're not ready Mm. for it. 
um, way of engaging and speaking and justifying behaviors and explaining things. And for them, the way they see the world is that it's essentially a matriarchy, mm. right? And that it's men who are under the control of women because of sex. Wow. So women control men through sex. But as far as they're concerned, they're the only real men. And other men are what they would refer to as tricks. So clients mm. of sex workers. Um, because they're paying for this. So they're paying for this subjugation to women. Wow. Through sex, if you would. So as far as they're concerned, the system looks completely different. And also within their view, their kind of very blasé approach to this is, well, they'd be doing this anyway. I'm not doing anything wrong. Mm. She'd be out here selling sex regardless if I was taking all of her money or not. It's really no different. Mm. So why not make money off of it? So that they're very good at defending how they view these things and what's going on. And it gets further complicated too, because especially when a sex worker has been with a pimp for a very long time, a very specific sort of relationship establishes there where all of a sudden someone who you might be inclined to identify as a victim working for a pimp then becomes an offender. Because mm. then they start recruiting. They start, they're the ones who do a lot of the violent reinforcement of rules and quotas and mm. what's expected. And they become the ones to run the house. Mm. Um, so it's very blurry and very messy in a mm. lot of this. Um, but pimps understand that what they do is problematic. Mm. They'll refer to themselves as parasites, as leeches, that they earn their money off the hard work of women. But to them, they just don't see it as a problem. They don't see it as any different. So they'll draw parallels to like, for instance, oh, what was that man's name? My brain is not helping me right. Hugh Hefner. Mm -hmm. Like, why does America celebrate that man, but I'm somehow evil, right? Was, the, was there a position? Or look at all these people on Wall Street, how much they exploit people and steal money and take stuff. How am I any different? Their whole worldview is everyone is either a pimp or a prostitute. Wow. Every relationship can be broken down like that. And to them... You, you know, as far as they're concerned, you want to be the pimp and not the prostitute. So they just have a very different understanding of how the world works. There's an entire sort of ethos and socialization that goes into that very particular group. Um, so I'm actually quite picky about how the, the term pimp gets used and or thrown around because there are, um, I think there's a temptation to call a lot of sex work managers pimps who don't necessarily fulfill that role exactly because I think that needs to be reserved for a specific style of management and a specific problematic and exploitative arrangement that's going on and there's a lot that needs to be unpacked there in order to deal with it like appropriately and, and how to tackle it so mm. well you you mentioned earlier that you convene a course on you know you teach mm -hmm. uh, sociology of sex work and uh you know, the misconceptions about sex work and how they're so adrift in conversations mm -hmm. about about sex work. So as someone who convenes a course and who delivers a course to, I imagine, students who are not exposed to academia on sex mm -hmm. work before that, how do you navigate that and how do you navigate the misconceptions and the sort of doubts about, you know, the topic that are so endemic to it. Mm -hmm. My first and foremost thing about that class, because I, I, I don't know how seriously students took it, even though I was very uh, clear about it, is 
um, or maybe I thought I was joking or I was going to be light that I, I, you know, I rated the class NC-17 or triple X. Um, because as far as I was concerned, we're not just going to abstract talk about these things. This isn't, I'm not going to keep this strong division between the erotic and the academic. It's not necessary. And in order to talk about something like sex work, you need to first tackle the topic of sex and bodies and communication and how sex is political and how we're taught these things and what we know about it. So the first thing I always did was because I'd have a classroom of 60 students from all over the world, from all different backgrounds. And when I'd ask them, you know, what was your exposure to um, sexual education like? The responses were enormous and very, very different in what they had been exposed to. So as far as I was concerned, and I did for years teach sexual health as well, I took the first portion of the class to go over sexual health um, so that it was very clear what we were talking about or what was going on. There's no ambiguity. So I think breaking down that wall and that kind of weirdness about saying body parts or talking about sex acts or, you know, uh, fluids or positions or anything that kind of gets the giggles or the ooze, the, just kind of getting that out of the way to begin with, just getting people comfortable that this is a space where this will be happening and that this is okay to talk about. Mm. And we're going to deal with this very head on. Um, I'm also very, uh, quite, from my work with teenagers te teaching sexual health, I'm also a bit concerned about the images that um, individuals are seeing, the very edited and very um, selected images of what bodies look like that people are um, getting, especially from various medias, mainly from um, platforms such as pornography. And I'm not anti-pornography. Uh, my concern is how that impacts students' relationships with their bodies and the bodies of others within these contexts. And I can speak from within the UK, at least, especially for women, you ask them, where where do you see female bodies? Mm. It's all media. It's not like real life. It's not, you know, there aren't like shared saunas here. There aren't nude beaches. There aren't, mm. um, even the culture within changing rooms at gyms is very different, right? So the first and foremost is kind of getting these com honest conversations going about human bodies and the way we as humans interact sexually and what this means. And I think once students kind of get those giggles and that discomfort out, um, we can then start a process, what I refer to as unknowing. So uh, breaking down exactly where our impressions of sexual relationships, what sex is, how we communicate about this, what these mean, the historical context, the religious context, the influences that come legally, uh, just to kind of really completely deconstruct sex completely so that they can start them with a building block to then rebuild based on sociological and feminist theory of what's going on and then present sex work once those kind of walls have been broken down. Because a lot of people, they can't, I'm, I'm pretty jaded, nothing really shocks me anymore, um, but a lot of people do really struggle to talk about um, sex or sexuality or sex acts or sex work. It's what we would refer to in the field as like the ick factor. Mm. Tends to be a big response, especially to sex work. It's like, but you, like, how could you? Mm. Um, so you need to get rid of all, you need to kind of clean the slate mm. before you can kick off with it. So it starts there and then it moves to core theory. And the course was divided based on like different forms of sex work. So we had 
stripping and somewhat controversially burlesque. Um, then we had pornography, so video and still, and then we did sex work, so indoor, outdoor. And then I also had uh, three uh, sex working researchers and academics come in and speak to the class because for me it was really important that it, sex workers weren't othered and they had the platform and opportunity to speak mm -hmm. for themselves and that students had the opportunity to speak with sex workers and to see that these are not other far out there distance, you know, and these are real human beings that you can talk to and have conversations with that have feelings and ideas and positions on these issues. So I think that was really important was giving sex workers themselves as the professionals and experts the platform to speak on their own behalf rather than mm -hmm. for them. So that was pretty much the, the gist of, of how that class ran. That sounds amazing. That truly sounds amazing. So something else that you've looked at in your research is challenges to research on sex work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is something quite easy to decipher even for a common person that, especially in countries like where sex work is criminalized, mm -hmm. uh, how, do you, how do you count the number of people engaging in that industry, both as, um, as sex workers and both as clients? And then how do you, uh, how do you, plan for healthcare? How do you plan for um, issues that they might face? How do you how do you figure out how to uh, how to gauge policies around it? So that seems to be the first stumbling block in achieving, uh, you know, true change when it comes to um, providing agency and support to sex workers. Mm -hmm. So as someone who's looked at challenges to research on sex work, what have uh, your findings been and what have you sort of discovered? Mm -hmm. So I mostly work within qualitative where the aim is less about generalizability and making grand statements about what the numbers are and what's happening. It's more about achieving more depth and detail as to what's going on and the, the, the narratives of individuals who are connected to sex work in um, a multitude of ways. So I think one of the biggest and most important things, especially when it comes to policies, they need to bring sex workers to the table. It has to happen. Um, and I'm not just talking about like specific types of sex workers, but they need to really keep an open door policy to these conversations because I think once these politicians and academics start closing their doors and saying this very patronizing, we know what's best, we're going to save you, fix this kind of mentality. Mm it really damages and is really leads to some very problematic outcomes for sex workers because they know what is going on. They know these fields. And it also further alienates them from being willing to cooperate with the police or willing to go and speak with politicians or to speak out if mm. anything's going on. So it really is a great disservice to all parties involved mm. um, when sex workers are not brought to the table for these, these conversations and asking for feedback or consultation on what's going on. These numbers are really hard to get a hold of, and it is difficult to figure out. I mean, we can do grand-scale social surveys and take guesses from that. We can project and guess what numbers might be based on arrest records. But then again, those don't necessarily reflect the social reality of what's going on. Because the problem is, because engaging in sex work, purchasing sex work, is so stigmatized and marginalized... Not a lot of people want to talk about this or admit mm. to it, especially if these are individuals who are already vulnerable. They might not be in a position where they necessarily want to identify as such, regardless of what side of that they're on. Mm. So 
it's it can be difficult to to tell what's going on in terms of numbers. But I think the first, I mean, all around the world in every nation, there are amazing um, groups of uh, sex working activists and allies that are doing incredible work on the ground in terms of um, organizing and unionizing and pushing for policy change. And I think that needs to be the first stop in a lot of these conversations and dialogues about what's going on. So um, like with the research that I've, I've been working on for the last couple of years, so I've got a couple, quite a few projects going on right now. My, my first stop is always sex working unions or sex workers themselves to get feedback and to get ideas from them. So kind of what would be referred to as um, a participant-led research model, sort of. Um, but definitely letting sex workers themselves have the first say mm. in how that should be guided and what, what needs to be going on with it. So I was reading this report by the WHO on promoting health uh, within sex workers and challenges mm-hmm. to that. And it very explicitly stated that violence and um, sexual violence and all kinds of violence and the health of uh, sex workers are more interlinked than a normal person's. And um, it also happens to be so because most violence against sex workers is a manifestation of gender inequality mm-hmm. and discrimination directed at women or at men and transgender individuals who do not conform to gender and heterosexual norms, mm-hmm. um, either because of their feminine appearance or of the way they express their sexuality. So how are gender and violence against sex workers um, interlinked? Do you, do you have any more thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a it's an exhibit A, essentially, if you would, of hegemonic violent masculinities and how that plays out against the, some of the most vulnerable individuals um, and gives them the ability, especially when it's criminalized, um, where they're it makes sex workers a much easier target. Mm. Um, and as far as they're concerned, what uh, sex workers is doing is wrong. It's, um, I don't really want to use a lot of the language they would use to describe it. It doesn't take much to do a couple of internet searches and just to figure out how many serial killers internationally targeted have targeted sex workers in particular. And their justification is they're helping the state. They're doing society a favor. They're cleaning up the streets as they see it. So I think once you, especially with these, reinforce that this is bad, this is stigmatized, it's something wrong, something evil, something shameful, it kind of adds, um, it kind of empowers these individuals to act out this violence against these communities as being okay because what these communities are doing is, quote, wrong, right? Mm. So, and the problem with a lot of this too, and we can't lose sight of the fact that sex work doesn't, exist within its own like special social world necessarily it exists within the larger broader right so experiences of sexism racism classism this is all these hierarchies are reflected within within sex work as well Mm -hmm. and the one that's really important to remember is within patriarchal structures you're going to have a lot of gender inequality happening within Mm -hmm. sex work as a practice and with what's happening within these communities and i think a lot of times what happens, and I think this is particularly in sex works, often you have individuals who are the most marginalized to begin with entering into various types of sex work. So they're already very vulnerable and marginalized. And it just, I think that just intensifies the um, their level of vulnerability and risk. And I think in terms of health, 
if workers cannot go to police, if they can't go to the public, if you if policies such as you know carrying X amount of condoms signifies that you're engaging in sex work, mm-hmm. so just some really basic things here, those acts to discourage sex workers from working in environments and situations that allows them to look out for their safety and allows them to be in protected safe spaces when they're working and to ensure that happens. But in a lot of cases, because sex work is already existing within societies where gendered violences are endemic, it's reflected within sex work Mm. as well. They just become essentially the easy targets for Mm. a lot of for a lot of individuals. Mm. You engage with this research um, pretty much on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. and you've worked with uh, sexual violence survivors mm-hmm. and sex workers and you know you teach teach this this topic. This can't be easy. I mean in terms of um, you know just something to to work with every single day 9 to 5 or mm-hmm. you know more than that often yeah. as it happens with academics. How do you balance your emotional well-being with the challenges that are unique to your line of work? Yeah, I think with... Because I've definitely experienced what would be referred to as like secondary traumatization through a lot of the work that I've done. So everything with working with convicted sex offenders to working with... Because I've also done work in emergency domestic violence and sexual assault centers... Um, as well as working with providing services for homeless HIV positive populations. So I've, I've really done a lot of work in some very demanding um, roles and high risk um, populations and situations. And I don't think there's any need to really sugarcoat it. I think the, the emotional and mental impact has been absolutely immense. Yeah, I mean, I'll still have nights where I'll have, you know, certain phone calls from working at the, uh, you know, crisis centers that keep me up at night. I can't sleep. Or I'll have, you know, interviews from pimps that I did, how many years ago was that? Five, six years ago? That still will just come into my brain at any given moment. Um, It really, really does take a toll. It's hard. And I think sometimes for other academics, it might be easier to say, like, oh, I have to finish this paper now where this needs to be done especially if you're in, in a moment where your research and the data is actually emotionally engaging you in a way that it's actually shutting you down intellectually, you have to take pauses and breaks and space out the way you work very differently. So I think the demands of the work are very different than what some academics might experience mm-hmm. because I think the, the self is so much more involved and so much more is sacrificed into the work in terms of pieces and parts of the the researcher going into it. Every individual I've spoken with that works in like challenging research topics and emotionally demanding because the emotional labor and management expected within this is is enormous. So I mean this is my personal some people like to, you know, they go to yoga or they take breaks. Like for me, my my main outlet has been um training in MMA. That's been my my go-to. So that for me has really relieved a lot of stress and individuals who might not be, uh, you know, keen on consensual violence and that content, but might not be their thing. So some people it's yoga, some people it's taking regular vacations or, you know, walking their dogs or things like that. But for me, it's been um, a combination of MMA and just making sure I take time and I work at a very different pace than most of my colleagues. Um, it's, it's difficult to quite 
to churn out papers or work mm-hmm. at quite the same rate um, when you're working within this, these fields because mm-hmm. it's if you are not mentally or emotionally in a space where you can handle working with the data, you're not going to be effectively working with the data. So mm-hmm. it's about um, finding that location within yourself and having support from other researchers or activists or individuals who understand what's going on and how and why. So, yeah, but yeah, I think it's kind of mentioned within the research, like it's nodded to, but um, I definitely think more explicit and more honest open conversations about the personal toll this work takes on the individuals partaking in it is necessary. And I think a lot of the stress within it is completely unnecessary stress as well, if I'm to be honest, because um, at least in my experience, so I have the the initial stress of the the information I'm being exposed to, the narratives that I'm hearing, the what I'm listening to essentially. And then second to that, because of the intensity and the nastiness of the discourse on this there is also very like threats harassment like name calling Mm. extreme public calling out it's so there's like two layers to this when you research sex work um that adds like there's there's two different levels to the the hits that you're taking essentially um in terms of what you're managing so it becomes it becomes a little wearing yeah. Uh, more power to you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I really don't know what else to say besides that, except more power to you. Um, so what's next for you? Are you continuing down the research path in the same field or are you looking at different themes or what's next for you? Um, so I have three projects going right now that I plan on continuing to carry out. So my postdoc is coming to an end soon, but I plan on continuing with the research. And when that happens but I'll be stepping outside of Scotland so I'm moving soon to a radically different living and working environment and that's gonna I think allow me to kind of take that emotional and mental distance that I might need from it and that care that I really need to check in on and and deal with at the moment and also engage in in activism and independent academic work that I I really want to be doing and want to be partaking in so I got I got I got my eye on other projects at the moment, but it's um, it's still within the same vein. I was really optimistic to branch into other fields, but it's looking like other areas of sex work that I want to get into are just as contentious and problematic. So it's difficult because I'm like I really would like to get out of some of these debates and discourses and just do my get on with my research already. But it's it's everywhere, mm-hmm. so there's really no escaping the. Uh, the, the full onness, if you would, of uh, working within this this topic, essentially. But I really do enjoy it. I have met some of my closest friends at a lot of these different activism meetings, um, at the unions, through the uh, different workshops, the different conferences that have gone on. And I think basically whenever I'm feeling sorry for myself that I'm really worn out and I'm really tired, I just look at my, you know, really near and dear friends who are actively um, sex working activists and researchers and it's nothing compared Mm. to what they're dealing with. So I think there's a lot of strength to be drawn from watching the example of other people who really are even more 
mm. um, public and are in much more uh, demanding roles. So mm. I'll keep in contact with them and keep keep doing what I do, but it's going to be from a, a bit more of a distance from mm. from academic life. Yeah. Fair play. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been such a moving conversation. I mean, being in the same room and just feeling your passion and energy for the field. Mm-hmm. We're really lucky that we have researchers like you who are doing this work every day and we're bringing um these issues to light and we're actually making a seat on the table for sex workers. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Holly Davis. Thank you for tuning in and in the description of this podcast you can find links to organizations that support victims of sexual violence. So if you or anyone you know might benefit from those, please feel free to use them. If you liked this episode, please follow and share and episode 3 should be out this weekend, so watch the space for that. If you have any thoughts of any kind that you'd like to share, please leave a review and if you'd like to get involved please leave a review as well or feel free to get in touch thanks again for tuning in this is asmita and you're listening to talking research